Welcome to the Runner's World Show, where each week we entertain you, inspire you, and inform you about all things running. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World. This week, an update on the Breaking Two Project, or Nike's quest to help three of the world's best athletes run a sub-two-hour marathon. Then in the kick, a 5K that takes place 650 feet below the Earth's surface. And the crazy story of how one college runner ended up with a Matthew Centrowitz tattoo on his left shoulder. But first, my interview with Myrna Valeria. When Myrna is out training for marathons or ultra marathons, she gets plenty of looks. She also endures plenty of comments, some encouraging, some misguided, and some just downright hurtful. That's because Myrna does not conform to our conventional ideas of what a runner should look like. She's 245 pounds, and while she lives a healthy lifestyle, runs 25 to 35 miles per week, and races in distances up to 100 kilometers, that number on the scale barely budges. And she's okay with that, because the body she has is capable of carrying her over epic distances. I would say that's probably 90% of the reason I love my body is because it can do really hard things. <laughs> like, yeah. I think running 10 miles is hard. And I think a lot of people think running 10 miles is hard. People think that running a mile is hard. And so the fact that I'm yeah. able to do that in the body that I have, um, you know, and particularly because lots of people don't, they look at me and they, they don't think that I can do that. I'm very, very appreciative of the fact that I can and I love the fact that I can travel very long distances using my own legs. This is a great, inspiring conversation, and I'm so excited to share it with you. Stick around, and thanks for joining us. Is it possible to be fat and fit? Healthy and happy, as well as heavy? Those are the questions that began writer John Brandt's August 2015 feature story about Myrna Valerio. And the short answer, according to the latest research, is yes and yes. For example, long-term studies by the Cooper Clinic in Dallas have found that the death rate for adults who are thin but unfit was at least twice that of fit and obese individuals. Yes, that's right. You can be obese and fit and be healthier than someone who is thin and unfit. Those researchers at the Cooper Clinic also found that regardless of body weight, Fitness provides protection against early death. And if you were to ask Myrna those questions, she would answer each of them with a resounding yes as well. Myrna is fit, healthy, and very happy. When we published John Brandt's story in that August 2015 issue, the response was amazing. We got dozens of letters from readers. One wrote that the Myrna story showed that the beauty of running today is that it is not the sole province of the lean, muscular, stereotypical athlete anymore. You go to races and see that runners come in all shapes and sizes, all ages, and all colors. That story, in fact, turned Myrna into a star of sorts. She was profiled on NBC Nightly News. She became a sponsored ambassador for Merrill, a sponsored athlete for Swiftwick Socks, an ambassador for Skirt Sports, and she landed a book deal. Her memoir, titled A Beautiful Work in Progress, is scheduled to be published by Grand Harbor Press in September. By day, Myrna is the Director of Equity and Inclusion at the Rabin Gap Nicucci School, where she also teaches Spanish and coaches the cross-country team. 
Her races in 2016 included a couple 25Ks, a few marathons, a 50K, and four Tough Mudders. She's also a mother. And honestly, she is one of the most positive, optimistic people I've had the privilege to meet. So, Myrna, as anyone who read our story knows, you are a runner. You are dedicated to this sport. You are passionate about your running. But you don't fit some people's idea of what a runner looks like or is, you know, quote, supposed to look like. I certainly do not. (laughs) How so? Um, Well, you know, I'm a a big girl. Um, You know, I presently weighing at about 245 pounds. I'm a black woman. Um, and so for some, that might be a striking difference to what they're used to seeing out there um, on a marathon course or on a trail run. I don't have a quote-unquote athletic-looking body. <laughs> so that makes me look very different from um, the sort of big core group of runners that we have in the United States. And what are some of the typical reactions that you get from other people you encounter while you're out running? Well, it, it ranges from, oh, wow, you're a big girl, you know, to be out here. Um, I've, I've definitely heard that a couple of times. Or people will automatically assume that I'm a novice or that I've never done this before or that I'm doing it to lose weight and they'll say things to that end. Or, you know, maybe you should be walking. Maybe you should be, you should hit the gym a little bit more. Maybe you should just go on a diet. So people have definitely said those things to me. They've written those things to me. Um, <laughs> uh, but, so wait, yeah. when, you're, mm-hmm. when you're out running... I'm sorry to interrupt you, but when you're out running, people actually say those things to you out loud? Yes, out loud. And you think, you know, there's some things that we should keep inside our heads, but uh, (laughs) apparently some people don't um, always heed those sort of societal norms and uh, just say whatever comes to their minds. And and they uh, they do say things like, um, you know, once I was... I was in Van Cortlandt Park um, training for um, training for some race, and I was running, and um, and a guy who was running who was running in the other direction paused and said, "Hey, sister, you should just uh, maybe you should just walk. You know, you'll lose weight faster." And then I turned around and said, well, actually, I'm training for three marathons, so I'm just going to keep running. <laughs> and he's like, oh, my bad. Um, so, uh, there, so people definitely do actually say stuff out loud. Um, you know, I was on a, a trail run once, and a, and a guy who had looped me several times um, said, wow, you know, you're, you're a big girl. You're still out here. Um, that I didn't necessarily take as a, as a compliment or... You know, it's him being mean towards me, but um, people do say things, and it sometimes it hurts. Sometimes it just kind of makes you wonder what, what am I doing? <laughs> Why am I out here? And then sometimes it just fuels my run more. You know, I get angry, or I get uh, I, I'm just more motivated to keep doing what I'm doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and do you think most people mean well, but still say the wrong thing? You know, I think some people do mean well. Um, some people, based on their own personal experiences, will say things that they think 
are helpful um, because maybe they've gone through something or maybe their cousin has, you know, lost a lot of weight by doing some diet and, and not by exercising. And so they think, they automatically assume that that's what I'm doing and that's what I'm about. But then, you know, I do feel the need to correct them. But, but then there are people who are stuck in their own sort of mind frames about what exercise is, about what running is, about who should be running and who shouldn't be running. And, uh, and those are the people I think don't mean well. Sometimes you have people that say, oh, well, you're going to ruin your knees. <laughs> and, and maybe they're a person that has ruined their knees um, because they ran too much or they ran too fast while they were young or whatever. Right. So it, this is really important for mm-hmm. listeners to understand. You have no problem with anyone saying to you that you are fat. No, right? because I, I am. Mean, <laughs> it's a word and um, it's a descriptive word. I mean, it's also a noun. I have fat on my body and I'm fat. Um, for a long time and even now, you know, people have definitely used that word with, with uh, sort of malicious intent. Um, and, and by sort of taking ownership of that word, I'm hoping that I that I can spread, you know, good intent with it. And for people to use it just as a descriptor, just as a, an adjective to describe somebody's shape or to describe what their body looks like and not to necessarily attach any sort of stigma or any, any like negative connotations to the word. Right. So it's not the adjective. It's it's the value judgment that comes along yeah. with it and people's misunderstandings mm-hmm. of what fat people should and shouldn't be doing. Right, right. right. Exactly. So how how do people typically think fat people are supposed to act, do you think? Oh, my goodness. Um, (laughs) I um, it's it makes makes me so angry that there's so many uh, negative connotations associated with the word fat. You know, we are where fat people are supposed to be slovenly sloppy lazy we're supposed to be sitting on the couch eating ice cream and potato chips and chocolate chip cookies and watching tv and not having sort of any ambition in life and just kind of letting life go by as we get fatter and fatter um you know we're supposed to have a bunch of health problems we're supposed to you know waddle about and you know have mobility issues we're supposed to be passing on these behavioral characteristics to our children and our children are supposed to be fat. We're not supposed to be interested in sports and we're not supposed to be at the gym unless uh, we're trying to lose weight. So there are all these things that are associated with, with sort of being fat. And you said earlier that you, you own this adjective, Mm -hmm. right? You, you, how do you own it? Well, um, in several ways, <laughs> you know, um, you know, I have my blog called Fat Girl Running, and I'm a fat girl running. I know that I will probably never be thin, um, and just based on genetics, based on the way I grew up, and then just based on my body type, I don't think I'll ever be thin. I could be thinner, but I will never be a th- or like a real thin person. That doesn't mean that I don't want to. Um, keep trying to attain the healthiest lifestyle and the healthiest life I, I can have. So what is, what is a healthy weight for you? The funny thing is that as I have, um, I, I was once over 300 pounds and that was not a healthy weight for me. And I don't even know how many pounds over 300 pounds I weighed um, because I didn't actually weigh myself until I'd lost a bunch of weight. And um and so, but I've, I, I seem to have 
sort of, I don't want to say plateau, um, because that sort of, that assumes some kind of uh, disappointment, and I'm not disappointed at all with with the way my body is and looks right now, um, and feels. Um, but um, I, you know, it's hard for me to get below 239. <laughs> so, yeah. And so uh, no matter what I do, I could diet, I could run a marathon every day, I could you know, I could be swimming all day and it's really, really hard for my body to go below that weight. And um, when I graduated from college, I was I was around 220 pounds. And then I, you know, started working the whole corporate circuit and, and, and I gained a couple of pounds and, that, and I went up to about 235. And so that's kind of where my weight was for a long time until I moved down to Maryland and had to drive everywhere. And I was really stressed out and it caused me to, to gain a lot of weight while I was in Maryland. And so, but, you know, even now, like the lowest weight that I've been at since, um, since 2008 was 239 and, um, and it won't budge. And I'm, and you know what, I'm happy with that. Like I might, I feel great. Um, you know, some people might not think my body looks great, but like, I think I look great. (laughs) Um, And, um, you know, again, but you know what, that's another thing that, you know, my, I'm black, right? And in african-american culture being curvy or being a bigger woman is is very much the appreciated norm so um so i've never felt like i needed to like be skinny or you know i've always wanted to be the healthiest i I could be um so if that means losing more weight then then i'll do that but in terms of aesthetics that's that's where my bodily aesthetic is right now as you touched on another thing that is somewhat new is we're learning that losing weight is far more complex than we used to Mm -hmm. think it was. It's not this simple calories in, calories out, binary equation, right? It's very complex. Each of us is different. And lots of people aren't ever going to get below a certain weight, at least least not in a healthy way. So that's more what I was wondering about. And I know you don't focus on what the scale tells you, but, but how do you define healthy? You know, I think if you can move about easily um, without getting winded, if you don't have any mobility issues, I'm looking at my family, like there are lots of mobility issues in my family because of various things. You know, we've got diabetes in the family, we've got hypertension and and heart disease and, you know, all of those things go sort of affect the way you move through the world and the way you live. So, um, you know, for me, if I'm not having any sort of metabolic issues um, in terms of blood sugar or hypertension, if I'm able to run a marathon (laughs) to do whatever kind of physical activity um, I want and need to do without being hampered by pain or, you know, by extreme fatigue. And there was a point when you, you weren't as healthy as you are now, mm-hmm. right? Can, yes. Tell me about how you got started running in the first place. Sure. Well, I mean, I started running in, in high school. I played field hockey. I played lacrosse um, all throughout high school. In college, I was very active, even though I didn't play any organized sports. You know, I swam. I, I ran. I did the fitness trail. Uh, I did whatever I could do to, um, to, you know, to be and feel healthy. But then... Um, after I had my son um, in 2003, um, I started gaining weight. And, um, or after I moved to Maryland, and my son was about one and a half years old, I 
moved down there with my son by myself. Um, and uh, I had a car, and it was a new thing. Like, I had to drive everywhere. I'm from New York, so I wasn't used to driving everywhere. <laughs> and, uh, and, so, and I also wasn't getting a whole lot of sleep. I had a very stressful job. And, um, and so, like, the, the, the confluence of all of those things, the, the lack of sleep, a very stressful job, having a kid who was sick all the time, so I had to miss school all the time, then I got sick. Um, and being uh, pretty far away from the family, it took its toll on me. And so I started gaining a lot of weight, um, started having problems with my hip. Um, and uh, yeah, and so and, and I felt bad all the time. <laughs> I left that job after three years because I, I knew that it was having a detrimental effect on me and my family. I moved back north to New Jersey and had an equally stressful job. <laughs> uh, my son had pneumonia a couple of times. And so, like, I wasn't really able to sort of schedule any physical activity in. It was a boarding school. I was on duty all the time. You know, again, my son was sick all the time. So when I wasn't on duty, I was on duty at home and uh, yeah. trying to take care of my son. And so that, again, took its toll on me. And then one day I thought um, I was having a heart attack. <laughs> it was actually yeah. You were also you've left out that you were also giving lessons, right? You were giving music lessons in another state. Yes, a lot of um, teachers actually um, have side gigs, and I, you know, I've always had a side gig, and so mine was to um, continue private teaching um, of voice and piano. I did guitar lessons, even though I'm not a guitarist. <laughs> I did Spanish lessons um, to my, my students that I had had when I lived down in Maryland. So I commuted every weekend. And so on the way back one day um, from Maryland, I started feeling pain in my chest. Uh, and I was like, oh, that's, you know, that's weird. I, don't know. I didn't know what it was. And uh, so I kept driving, and uh, the pain kept getting more insistent. Um, it, it was sharper. It was, you know, they, it came in waves, kind of like spasms, like back spasms, but they were on, the only they were in the left side of my chest. And so, you know, so, so I started getting nervous, and I thought, um, I think I'm having a heart attack. Oh, my God, I'm having a heart attack. And so, you know, I, I you know, glanced back at my son who was in the back of the car sleeping. And I said, oh, my God, what am I going to do? I'm going to have a heart attack. I don't want to get into an accident. And so uh, I pulled over, shut the car off. And the pains just kept coming, kept coming. And I'm trying to decide what I was going to do. Should I call, call 911? Should I just keep driving home? Should I just sit here and, and wait until the pains subside? Should I flag someone over? Um, so all these thoughts are going through my head as I... Um, as I sat in the car. And eventually, like after about 15 minutes, um, the pain started to um, subside a little bit and my breathing returned to normal because I'd like, at that point I had been hyperventilating because I was so nervous. And, uh, and I decided that I was gonna keep driving, <laughs> which, you know, probably not the smartest thing to do, uh, especially because I didn't know what was going on with me. And I made it home. And, uh, you know, it turned out that I wasn't having a heart attack. The doctor told me I was probably having a panic attack. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and of course, in hindsight, of course I was having a panic attack. <laughs> <laughs> right. You With know? everything you had going on in your Right. Life. You yeah. know, I, yeah, I wasn't sleeping and I was occupied every single minute of my day. So, yes, of course I was having a panic attack. Um, but, you know, in that I followed up with a cardiologist and he, and he said, hey, you know, how old is your son? And I said, five. And uh, he said, well, do you want to see him grow up? And um, that was all it took. <laughs> that was all it took um, to imagine 
my son without a mom. I didn't, I didn't ever want that to happen to my son. I said, okay, I got it. I understand. I got it. So even though you did not have a heart attack then, he was concerned that he there was, yes. was a heart attack yeah. in your future. Right, because you know, because I was big. I was way bigger than I am now. Um, and then I had a lot of inflammation. And so um, he said, well, I need you to lose weight. And that was all I needed to hear. And, and, and then I started. <laughs> I, re- I started running again. Uh, and it was, it was a slow and painful process in the beginning uh, in, in 2008. I looked at it very clinically. This is what I need to do. I need to, you know, I'm going to sign up for a 5K and I'm going to train for the 5K. And so I did. And, um, you know, I signed up for a bunch of 5Ks and started running again. And it, was, and it just brought back the same kind of joy that I had always had when I, when I ran. So, um, so it, you know, it changed from being a slow and painful process to a joyful process and, and, and something that I looked forward to every day, um, even though it wasn't always fun. But I knew in the long run, uh, and I knew that after every single run, whether it was on a treadmill or a trail or like on our school's cross country course, that I always, always, always felt better. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, and so that's, that's how that came to be. Um, like I rediscovered the joy of running in 2008. All right. So I want to ask you about that, mm-hmm. the, the agony and the ecstasy, right? <laughs> what, what are some of the things about running when you're 245 pounds like you are now or, mm-hmm. you know, back then when you were heavier right. about uh, running that people may not expect, especially when you're, you're doing long distances? Mm-hmm. What are some of the challenges? Okay. Challenges. Okay. Well, my feet hurt all the time. <laughs> Your feet, yeah. <laughs> my feet right. hurt all the time, and I had several bouts of plantar fasciitis to deal with. Um, but I also, in addition to um, in addition to running, I joined a gym, and uh, I did a lot of yoga, and so that actually helped strengthen my feet. And um, and so the plantar fasciitis went it went away. Um, and I also learned um, that I was wearing the wrong kinds of shoes. <laughs> I wasn't. Yeah. Even, I wasn't even. I was wearing trainers. I wasn't, wasn't even wearing running shoes. And um, so, you know, I changed my shoes. And it, you know, these are lessons that I learned. And uh, you know, I had to deal with clothing issues because you know back then there wasn't the the um, array of athletic apparel for um, plus size women that fits well, that is functional, that lasts a long time. So you know, I, I dealt with clothing issues all the time. Um, <laughs> but that didn't stop me, you know, like even if I was uncomfortable, I, I went out for a run anyway. And then the, you know, the looks that you get from people, those, those are, those, that's definitely a challenge. Um, but, you know, I've always been a pretty confident person. So even though like in the moment it may have affected me, I just would keep running because I knew that I needed to do this for myself. I wasn't doing it for anyone except for me and my son and my, you know, and my husband. Um, so that could be alive. <laughs> There's this great quote in John Brandt's profile of you from Runner's World, and in it you say, I'm pretty much in love with my body. Sometimes I get disappointed or angry with it, but like any long-term committed relationship, it usually comes right back to love and respect. Do you feel that way about your body because of running, because of what it shows you it can do as you continue to push it and ask it to take on bigger challenges, do you think? Oh, absolutely. I, I would say that's probably 90% of the reason I love my body is because it can do really hard things. <laughs> like, yeah. I think running 10 miles is hard, um, you know, and I think a lot of people think running 10 miles is hard. People think that running a mile is hard. And so the fact that I'm yeah. able to do that in the body that I have, um, you know, and particularly because, you know, lots of people don't, they look at me and they, they don't 
think that I can do that. Um, you know, I'm very, very appreciative of the fact that I can. Um, and I love the fact that I can travel very long distances using my own legs. And that's a feeling that not everybody can have, people who um, have issues or who, who are disabled. Um, and I so appreciate the fact that I am not and that I can, you know, I can be out there. And so sort of having people live vicariously through me is, <laughs> is one of the reasons I, you know, I'm so happy while I'm running, you know, like I'm running for my family. I'm running for those who can't do what I'm doing. I'm running for myself too, but uh, you know, I mean, I just love the fact that um, my body allows me to do that. Yeah. And how many marathons and ultras have you done to this point? And, and what, what is the hardest thing you've ever done running so far? I, I think I'm up to eight marathons and eight ultra marathons. Let's see, the hardest, the hardest ultra I've done um, has definitely been the Havelina 100 100K, and I did that last October uh, to celebrate my 40th birthday. And, uh, and it was hard, not because the terrain was difficult or, uh, you know, it, I mean, it wasn't technical. There was very little um, elevation change. I was like 600 feet per loop. Uh, but I was out there for a long time. <laughs> and it was a yeah. new, it was a very, very new distance to me. Before then, I had only ever done 35 miles, and, and that was at the, the Georgia Jewel 35-mile race. And... Um, and so, like, I, I skipped over 50 <laughs> and went straight to 100K. Um, and it was, you know, it was a very, very unique challenge. I was out in the desert. I'd never run in the desert before. Um, I'd never been out there for longer than 13 and a half hours. And so um, it was new territory for me um, in terms of endurance and longevity and, and, and just being able to stay awake for, it was more than a day for me. And um yeah you know, and running in the dark and having my headlamp fail on me in the, you know, in the middle of the night and, and, but, you know, being afraid to move because there were cacti everywhere. And, um, it, it was hard, but it was also probably the greatest experience I've ever had, um, doing an event because I had to dig so deep. And when you dig that deep, um, and you find reserves that you did not think you had, it is, let me tell you, it's such an amazing experience and an amazing feeling. 62 miles. That's an incredible accomplishment. You know, I certainly was the biggest woman out there. And I, and I kind of delight in people thinking that I won't be able to finish. Um, and, and, huh. then, and then proving them wrong. <laughs> you know, I don't feel like I need to prove them wrong because I'm really only out there for myself uh, to see what, what my body can do. Um, but it's always, it always feels good to, to have people like, oh, wow, well, you finished. Excellent job. You know, it's a little condescending, but whatever. <laughs> um, you know, I'll take it. Did you encounter the same kind of uh, puzzlement during that? 100k race that you have experienced so many other times just on normal runs at home well you know it was different this time because a bunch of people knew who i was <laughs> right. so um there was only one instance and it was at packet pickup that one guy you know i was talking to some guy who had been reading my blog and another guy came up to him and said well you know just started talking statistics only less than 50 percent of the, the field will finish 
And, and I didn't know why he said that and why, because that's not what we had been talking about. <laughs> and, yeah. um, and I said, oh, in my head, I said, well, I will prove you wrong. And, um, <laughs> and so I had that going through my head the entire time. I was like, well, I have to finish. There's, I mean, there's no, unless I get injured um, or unless I die or unless something attacks me, <laughs> um, I will finish this race because, you know, I had prepared for it and I, I felt good. Um, I was really excited about it and I had planned you know, I'm, I'm a very disorganized person, but I had planned so well for this race. I knew when I was going to feel bad. I knew how I was going to feel. I knew what I was going to do when I felt bad. And I knew how I was, how I was going to get myself over particular hurdles. So, yeah, I was ready. And, and I was not going to be one of those people. Um, but otherwise, otherwise, you know, most people um, that I encountered were like, awesome. They were just so encouraging because everybody, you know, out on the course, everyone's running their own race. Everyone's trying to beat their whatever they're trying to beat or do a new distance or or hit a PR. Um, and so we respected that in each other. And that was that was a sentiment throughout the entire event. It took me um, 25 hours, 59 minutes and 55 seconds, <laughs> just under 26 hours. Which wow, is, you know, that's incredible. It's, you know, it was definitely over day. And I, and I had stayed up for like 35 hours, just <laughs> something crazy like that. Um, yeah, it was great, though. It was great. I can't wait to do it again. Roberta Gibb, who was the first woman ever to run the Boston Marathon back in 1966, she was on the show. And she she talked about how she felt this really intense responsibility almost once the race had started to make sure that she finished because she felt like if she didn't at the time people didn't think women could even physically run 26.2 miles they thought all these awful things were going to happen to their bodies and that women just weren't equipped to cover the distance that men of course could cover and that she felt this um, she felt almost duty bound to make sure that she finished because if she didn't, then it would implicitly suggest that all those doubters were were right. I wonder if you ever feel that sense of pressure because you are such a standard bearer in so many ways. Um, I definitely do. <laughs> um, there was one race in particular, and it was uh, one of the North Face Endurance Challenge trail races um, in Virginia. This is actually when I was training, when I had just started training for my first marathon. I, that was the race where I fractured my ankle. And, um, and it was, I remember it very clearly, it was like June 2nd or June 3rd. And, you know, three miles into the, four miles into the race rather, I, what I thought, sprained my ankle. Um, and it was extremely painful. I'd never felt pain like that before. Um, and, uh, you know, so I limped to the next aid station um, and I'm trying to figure out, like, should I stop? Should I, you know, should I DNF? Should I try to continue? Um, and then I had this thought, I was like, you know, I'm like, I'm the biggest girl at this race and um, I, I'm going to need to finish. <laughs> They'd offered to get a, a medic out to, to drive me back to the start and I said, I don't want that. I don't want people looking at me and saying, well, the, well, obviously the fat girl couldn't do it. So, um, well, that proves that. And so, so when I got there, and of course, it's, you know, in hindsight, it was a very, really stupid decision. Um, I got to the aid station. I asked for some ibuprofen. I wrapped my ankle and then I kept going. I, you know, I finished the half marathon and, um, 
Of course, it turned out that <laughs> the next day I found out it had to go to the doctor because the swelling had not gone down and it was extremely painful and I couldn't walk. Um, I found out that it was an avulsion fracture. fracture. And, um, but I finished. <laughs> Because I really, really did not want anybody thinking that the fat girl couldn't do it. And so I did. Um, right. right. But that sometimes there, there are times when, you know, especially when I go to a race that I've gone to before and I have and I have finished, you know, sometimes I DNF because I don't have it in me that day. Or like I know I have to drive 13 hours the next day and it wouldn't make any sense for me to try to do a 50K today. <laughs> so, you know, so like I drop out at 10 miles or I drop out at 20 miles. Um, and so, and I use them for training runs, you know, so like, um, I, I never feel that now anyway, I never feel that I sort of have to do something to prove to people that the fat girl can do it. Um, because right. I know like, and I think because my experience speaks for itself. Like if you look at my blog, if you look at athletes, you can see all the events that I've done and the ones that I've finished. So, um, so I'm right now, I'm not trying to prove anything to anybody. Well, that just sounds like a runner talking, not <laughs> a fat runner or a thin runner. That That's something we all go through, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So you said something earlier about um, your childhood, and uh, it, it sounds like you did not get any really negative feedback about your size when you were growing up, not at home and not even at school. How important do you think that was? Oh, I think that's extraordinarily important. Um, again, you know, um, in black culture, there's, there isn't this sort of sense of body dysmorphia that there is in, in other cultures in the United States. And so that definitely contributed to the fact that I, I don't have any issue with the way my body looks um, or, the, the, or my body size. Um, yeah, I, I, never, I never felt any pressure to, to look different or to be different. Um, in high school, I, we, I, I went to an all-girls school and it was never, ever any talk to me, anyway, directed to me about, you know, or you need to lose weight or, you know, you can't play field hockey unless you lose weight or it would be better if you lost weight. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I definitely think that helped who I am now and it helped me yeah. to be confident as I am right now. So I think that food and running basically go hand in hand. One, one of the, I know one of the reasons I run is because I love food so much. I love to eat. I'm constantly thinking about what I'm going to eat when I'm running, especially if it's a long run. I love the idea that I can sort of eat basically whatever I want, you know, within reason because I do run and, you know, I'm, I'm pretty fit. And I think that's a pretty healthy philosophy to have. What's your food philosophy? Um, <laughs> it, I, I like, I love cooking and I love food and I see food as, I see food as nutrition, but I also see it as home. I come from a family where there are really, really good cooks. <laughs> Everybody's a good cook in my family. And so like I've, I've always seen food as a good thing as a as a, a thing that expresses love and that expresses family. So what what are some of your favorite foods? What's your go to just finished a big race or a long run reward meal that you fantasize about when you're running? Oh, definitely. Well, I love really good Chinese food. 
<laughs> like coming from New York and like being exposed to like really, really good Chinese food, um, I'd love to have fried rice and some kind of like chicken and vegetable after a big run. Um, or pasta, like I'm, I love pasta and I make really, really good sauce. So um, those are my two, like two favorite things, like, like a thin spaghetti with a really good marinara sauce or gravy, depending where, where you're from. Um, and some, and, right. you know, with some meat and some cheese. I love meat. I love steak. <laughs> um, yeah. And I don't ever feel bad about it, especially after a long run. So you just mentioned living in New York City, and mm-hmm. earlier you talked about uh, when you were in high school, you basically were going to school at the boarding school during the week, and then on weekends, you were traveling to the Juilliard School yes. in New York City mm-hmm. to be trained um, as a as a singer. Do you listen to music when you run? I, um, on the treadmill, I do, because <laughs> it's yeah. safe. I don't have to worry about cars or, like, bears. A lot of times when I'm... Um, when I'm like in a trail race or on a trail and it's kind of freaky or like creepy or it's scary, I'll, uh, <laughs> for, for some reason, I'll listen to Luther Vandross or Whitney Houston. <laughs> and that, you know, yeah. it kind of reminds me of home, it reminds me of being with my mom in Brooklyn. Um, and that brings me a sense of comfort. And uh, I, a lot of times I listen to classical music. I'm a, I'm a classical musician. So, um, so I'll listen to some Schubert or Mozart or Brahms or something. <laughs> and sometimes, a lot of times, I'm just, I don't listen to anything. And just, I enjoy the sounds of my own body working and, you know, hearing birds chirp and, and also hearing, like, if there's any, if there are any animals behind me. So, <laughs> yeah. so I, you listen to all of these things occasionally. Do, do you sometimes sing when you're out there, especially out on the trail? Oh, I, I am known to sing sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, I sing everything. I'll sing classical music. I've, I've been known to sing like, <laughs> opera arias from Carmen or, you know, La Traviata or, um, or you know, I will sing Luther Vandross or Whitney Houston, um, <laughs> depending on my mood. How has your running life changed since this Runner's World story Oh, came my out? God. <laughs> <laughs> you had to hire a publicist uh, just to field yes. all the media requests that you started oh my getting. God. You've got this following now that is I mean, you were writing your blog before we published our story. Right. I know that because mm-hmm. we found your blog and read it and mm-hmm. I was moved by it and it, it was funny, it was so honest, it was so great and and original, but it's blown up since then, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> so yes, I did yeah. have to hire a publicist, which is, you know, even you know, saying that is, is still weird to me. Um, and uh, I, I did get a lot of media attention. And so I spent uh, basically all of last summer uh, in 2015 uh, fielding calls and doing interviews, doing other podcasts, um, writing, you know, answering uh, questions for different publications. Um, and all the while, you know, trying to train for my 100 Ks. So I was doing 50 Ks and I was doing lots of other races and, and training runs. And um, it was really, really exciting. And it was also really cool to go to a race like the Haveline 100 or, or to go to the Georgia Jewel and have people say, hey, it's Fat Girl Running or it's Myrna. I was like, oh my goodness. I, I was at a race, uh, I was at the Finger Lakes 50s uh, last summer. 
And I, you know, I was running, um, you know, and this was actually the week that I think the the, the article came out, and, um, and so I started at the race, and so some woman sidled up to me, and just kept looking at me, and she was like, "Were you just in Runner's World?" <laughs> and, and and I said, "Yeah," and she's like, "No way! <laughs> this is so cool!" And so that happened all day, and uh, it was so wonderful, and that was a really really difficult run, but that that kind of made it easier and it was just really exciting. And, and I knew like, um, it was so, the mud was up to our knees and it was a really, really, it was the, it was a treacherous course, you know? And, and you know, I, any other day I would have stopped at, you know, at 15 and a half miles and said, you know, I'll save the 50K for later. But I was like, I gotta finish this because <laughs> I was just in runner's world, so I can't quit now. <laughs> And um, and so you know that that kind of was a tone of all of the other races that I did for the rest of the summer. So I did several 50ks that summer, and uh, and you know some people asked me for my autograph. I'm like, is this really happening? <laughs> and then I got a lot of there was a lot of of you know commentary on my blog. And then you know I started hearing from various uh, apparel companies. And, um, you know, so that was exciting. Like, I, I haven't paid for athletic clothing in the last almost two years. <laughs> right. So, um, which is really, really cool because for bigger people, it's more expensive. And, you know, like, I, you know, I haven't, you know, I got an uh, ambassadorship with Merrill and that's, that's huge. It is huge. Things are still rolling in. Like, you know, I can't talk about it much, but I'm working on a special project. <laughs> Uh, with Tough Mudder, and that's all I can say. <laughs> um, oh, wow. I thought you were going to mention your book there for a second. Oh, so well, addition, yeah, that too. <laughs> that too. You know, you know what? If I if I hadn't been running and if I hadn't been exercising and preparing for Tough Mudders and stuff like that, uh, I probably wouldn't have the energy that I have now. So, um, so I think I think it's that's definitely like keeping me up during the day. In addition to lots of coffee, of course. Um, and you know, just having to—I have to be here for my son. I have to, you know, have to work. So, I also have a full-time job, <laughs> and I'm coaching. So, um, right. So you're you're the cross-country coach. Yes, at, I am at the I'm school the where head, you teach. Yes, right. I'm the head coach, and uh, yeah, and so like every single minute is occupied. But you know what? I prefer it to be this way. Obviously, a lot has changed for you since mm-hmm. the story ran. What has changed in running? Have things changed around you? Do you think? Do you see more people who look like you at races? Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I, um, especially in trail racing, um, I see more black people, for example, um, at a lot of the trail races that I had not seen before. Um, and I think, and, and I'm hoping that I have contributed to that, especially you know with black people not necessarily feeling as though we belong outdoors or that we don't we don't, uh, we're not welcome in the outdoors. Um, I think it's important for me to be out there, um, you know, in my big black body, <laughs> you know, yeah. representing for black people and for Hispanic people and, you know, and making sure that people know that the outdoors doesn't belong to white people. Um, it's uh, sort of an anomaly when you see black people doing a big mountain race or a big uh, technical trail race because typically those things have not been welcoming to us either because we think it's not welcoming or because it's not welcoming uh, it's not a welcoming atmosphere um, so uh, and that's and that, that goes for like all outdoor activities like you know how many you don't see a lot of people black people backpacking you don't you just don't see it and so when I go on a backpacking trip people are like oh my what what are you doing <laughs> You know, or when I go hiking, you know, it's and I see other black people on the trail. I'm like, hey, what's 
what's up, guys? <laughs> you know? And it's like, I'm so happy to see them. They're happy to see me because you don't typically see people of color out there on the trails. But it's a community that's growing. So do you feel twice the amount of responsibility as a role model, as someone who is black and fat? I've, you know what? In, in all my life, I felt like I, I have a responsibility to represent, right? Um, in anything that I do, whether you know it's because I'm a fat person or whether it's because I'm a black person or a Hispanic person, like I always feel like I need to be a role model. I'm a teacher, like that's my job. <laughs> and uh, you know, so I've got to walk the walk or run the run or I do it for myself, but I also do it because I want other people to see me and I want other people to be, to, to know that they're welcome and to know that they absolutely should give themselves permission to do the, the kinds of things that I do or the kinds of things that they, they want to do, that they want to try, but they're maybe too, too timid or, or, or they feel like they don't belong in a particular area. Um, I want them to give themselves permission to do that. And if I, if, I can, if I can teach that or if I can show that or model it by giving myself permission to do these things, even though they're not always comfortable for me, that, you know, that's, that's great because then other people will see that and maybe they'll be inspired to do the same. To read John Brandt's profile of Myrna Valerio, go to runnersworld.com slash audio. Coming up after the break, an update on Nike's Breaking 2 project. In early December, Nike announced its super ambitious Breaking 2 project. Three top distance runners, Eliud Kipchoge of Kenya, Lalissa de Sissa of Ethiopia, and Zersene Terese of Eritrea, had officially begun their Nike-backed buildup toward a 159-59 marathon attempt sometime this spring. Alex Hutchinson and I were at Nike with the three runners when the project launched. We got a unique look at some of the physiological testing they underwent at Nike's super-secret innovation kitchen and a behind-the-curtain glimpse at a few of the nutrition, gear, and training innovations the company has developed specifically for this endeavor. We were there to report on the project as well as to begin my own audacious attempt at a moonshot, running a Boston qualifier this spring. We first introduced the Breaking 2 project in episode 33 of the show, and I encourage you to check it out. For the Breaking 2 team, the clock is now ticking, and whatever progress they and the runners hope to make toward that barrier needs to be well underway. To gauge that progress, a team of Nike scientists and designers took a two-week trip to Kenya, Ethiopia, and Spain, where they met with each of the runners and their coaches and support teams in their home training environments. During each leg of the trip, Alex was able to check in with the team, and we wanted to get an update on how things were going, so... We recently contacted Alex via Skype. Okay, so Alex, the Breaking 2 team at Nike recently got back from a, a pretty long and I'm sure fairly arduous trip. They went to Kenya and Ethiopia and then also to Madrid. Uh, why did they make this trip? Yeah, well, obviously, it's easier to, for them to make the athletes come to, to Nike HQ. But the truth is, each athlete is training in their home environment right now. And that's, you know, when you have a, 
a world-class or world-record Olympic champion athlete like Elliot Kipchoge, and you don't necessarily want to pull him out of his home environment. So each of these athletes is training with their own coaches in where they're used to training, where they're comfortable. Uh, and so that's good from a training point of view, but from the point of view of Nike wanting to uh, give some input and try out some new things with the athletes, they need FaceTime with the athletes and they need FaceTime with the coaches to build trust and to to sell the athletes on some of the things they're going to be trying to do. So they, they felt they had to, to, to make the trip, which, as you said, was a, a lot of traveling uh, in a, in a two-week period. Um, but uh, they've got back, and I think they, they feel like it was a pretty successful trip. And I think a lot of us probably assume that these are three of the best runners on Earth, which they are, and therefore they must be dialed in in every possible way, their training, their nutrition, their hydration, everything that makes up a, a quality training program. But in fact, that may not necessarily be true, as, as you found out, right? Yeah, I mean, I, and I, I would say that this is something that, that people are debating right now. There, the, some of the critics of the Nike project have, have argued that there's a sort of almost colonialist uh, presumption here to say that who are these guys from various research labs around the world and from Nike to, to tell Elliot Kipchoge how to get faster? Um, and whether it works will, will remain to be seen. But uh, Patrick Sang, uh, Elliot's coach, who, again, he trains not just Elliot Kipchoge, but a lot of some of the very best runners in the world. He, he made the point that, look, we're interested in, in trying to push our limits. And it's sort of like Columbus uh, sailing across the ocean is, is the analogy he used. You don't know your limits until you get out there and explore. So even though these guys are at the top of the world, all three of the athletes in their coaching groups proved to be very open to listening to what uh, the the scientists and the, the Nike team had to say, and not just willing to listen, but eager to find out what can we do to get, you know, whether it's a second or a, uh, 10 seconds or a minute faster. So there are a number of areas where there's, in some sense, maybe some low-hanging fruit. You know, we'd like to think that everyone who reads Runner's World knows about the importance of, of taking in carbohydrate during a marathon, for example. Um, and Elliot Kipchoge, who's the Olympic champion, is quite sophisticated in his use of modern sports science, and he's he's very aware of that kind of thing. But the other two guys, Melissa de Sissa and Zersene Tedese, they've run some marathons, but they they don't necessarily do these things that we consider quite obvious. They, they drink very little uh, because they're not used to it and because uh, it's not part of their usual routine and they maybe have a little bit of trouble adapting to it. So one of the things they were there to do was to to help these guys First of all, they, they brought a, a machine that can measure the, the level of carbohydrate stored in your muscle using ultrasound. And they could show these guys, they could say, hey, let's, let's measure the amount of fuel in your muscles. Let's do a long run now and let's measure it again. And now you can see your fuel stores are pretty much empty. And we can look at your pacing in some of your recent marathons and see that Zersene Tedese, they, they, they were able to show him and look. In virtually all your marathons, you're with the leaders till 30 or 35 kilometers, till 20 miles. And then, in their words, you blow up like a bomb. Uh, and that's the moment where the fuel in his muscles runs out. So I think part of the trip was to sell these guys on some things that aren't revolutionary, the idea of, of you know taking in a sports drink during a marathon, hmm. but that these guys haven't been doing. So they may have some improvements coming from fairly, uh, you know, not rocket science kind of suggestions. Wow. Okay. Well... I know you were able to connect with the Nike team during their trip multiple times, and you were able to get progress reports from them. So 
why don't we just go camp by camp and country by country and athlete by athlete, and you can give us a sense for what you learned, starting, I guess, with Kenya, right? That's where the Nike Breaking 2 team went first to spend some time with Elliot Kipchoge. Yeah, they started with Elliot. And again, Elliot Kipchoge, the Olympic champion, he's kind of the acknowledged star of the group, and he probably has the most sophisticated and advanced training methodology. So they weren't so concerned about presenting him with basic stuff, but they wanted to help him look at some more sophisticated things like the drafting formation they're going to use to minimize air resistance. And so he's got a big crew of training partners he runs with. And so they were practicing running in a specific formation that minimizes wind resistance. Well, Kipchoge wore a device, something called an anemometer that measures wind speed on his chest so that he could see the subtle changes in how much wind he was facing depending on exactly where he ran relative to his training partner. So that's something that he and the other runners are going to be practicing for for quite a while. And he did, you know, he's an impressive runner. He did workouts like 12 by 1200 meters with two minutes rest at two hour marathon pace, all of this at an altitude of over 7,000 feet. And when I talked to the, the scientific team, they said he looked great. His heart rate was steady like a rock. It wasn't creeping up through the session. Each interval was the same as the last. He, he was able to just keep on going without appreciable strain. Good so Lord. they were very, yeah, they were very impressed with what he was doing. And and I had a chance to chat with Elliot during that time too, just to get a sense of what he thought. And he, he was very, very calm, very quiet, very confident. Um, and I, you know, I asked him what he was going to do differently to get to that two hour barrier and he said well he's going to keep doing what his coach says and they, they don't plan to, to radically alter what they're going to do the workouts will be pretty similar but he said my mind will be different hmm. so he's his belief has changed and you know i asked him whether other kenyans what they think about that his chances of running sub two and he said most people have come around he thinks 80 percent of people now think it will happen soon but he, the other thing he said is you know most people thought they would die before they saw a man running under two hours. But he says, I think, I think I'll, I'll prove them wrong. So he, he sounded pretty confident. Okay, and then the team went from Kenya to Ethiopia, right? Yes, so it's a neighboring country in the Rift Valley. And uh, it was quite a contrast, because where Eliud Kipchoge trains is in the countryside. It's really quiet, and he's uh, even though he's a very successful guy, he goes and lives in this very, very rudimentary camp with no running water and electricity. Um, in Ethiopia, Lelisa de Sissa is, is training just outside of the capital city, Addis Ababa. And so it was, they said it was very much controlled chaos there, uh, much busier, uh, much less sort of serenity there. But de Sissa, he's a, a big mileage guy. They said he was doing 200 miles a week, which is, wow. you know, it's, it's a lot even by elite standards. Um, but he, he hasn't been doing as much speed work. Uh, he hasn't really done anything faster than two-hour marathon pace. So that was one of the things they kind of highlighted is that there's still time. The attempt isn't until this spring, but he's got to make sure he, he's ready to, to run fast, not just long. DeSissa is, unlike the other two guys, he does not come from a track and field background. He was a road runner right from the start. So he doesn't have a lot of experience running in the tight packs that you experience on the track. And so he has a lot of practice to do to get used to this drafting formation. And he also has a lot to do to get used to drinking more fluids. So one of the things that the team did with all, in all three places is they went along for a long run, 35 to 40 kilometer long run, and they followed either in a car or on a bike, giving, uh, giving fluids every 8 to 10 minutes 
which is very frequent. It's more frequent than you get in normal marathons, trying to get these guys used to drinking more fluid. And so during this long run, they, they tried to offer to Sissa a total of about a liter and a half of fluid. And the next day, they asked him how he thought it had gone. And he told them, yeah, he felt like he had drunk a lot. Mm. But in fact, he had only drunk 400 milliliters, so less than a third of what uh, of what they were trying to give him. So his perception was that it was a ton. But in fact, he's got a lot of work to do to get used to drinking the drinks that he will need, not so much for hydration, but to get the calories, the carbohydrates into his system during the marathon. For fuel, yeah. Did you get a sense for why his personal preference is to drink so little during a marathon? It seems to be pretty standard among Ethiopian runners. They said everyone there, this is a big training camp. He was staying at a place called Yaya Village where runners from around the world come to train. And But the Ethiopian runners there they just didn't get thirsty. They were Their perception of thirst was very different from ours. I had a chance to, to chat with some of the scientists who worked with Haley Gibber Selassie, who set two marathon world records back about a decade ago. And his experience was very similar. In his first marathon, he blew up and ended up fading back to third. I mean, he still ran okay. He ran about 206. But he was used to, again, sipping a little bit of water, not taking a whole lot of fluid. He he was famous for losing about 10% of his body weight during the marathon. But eventually he started working with a scientific team and they said, you've got to get the, the calories in. It's not so much about the fluid, it's about the calories. Mm-hmm. And so he, he adopted a very regimented approach and went on to set a couple of marathon world records. And so they're hoping that there's going to be something similar with, with Tassissa, that the culture among Ethiopian runners is not to drink a whole lot and, and certainly not to take in many calories. But it does seem to help, and there are some examples of Ethiopian runners like Gabriel Selassie who've made it work. And so hopefully DeSissa will follow that path. There are so many products out there, as you know, that could be an alternative for drinking as a way to get more glycogen into your system. There are, you know, chews and sport beans and bars. Do you know if the team is testing any of those kinds of things, especially for the athletes who just don't like to drink that much liquid? Yeah, from what I understand, they're just right now looking at at fluids. A lot of those products are great for cyclists, but with running, it's one thing when we're out for the pace that that you or I would run at, but when they're running at two-hour marathon pace, which is about 435 a mile, it's very, very hard to do anything other than gasp down a few few gulps of liquid. Uh, Chewing is hard. It, It constrains your breathing, and anything solid is also harder to digest. So, because in running, your stomach is bouncing up and down. So stuff that works for cyclists and for running at slower paces doesn't tend to work. But it's 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 something they haven't solved yet because they want to get a lot of carbohydrates in. But if you if you try and drink something that's too concentrated, it makes it harder to digest. But if it's too diluted, then you have to drink too much fluid. So they, they haven't figured out that piece of the puzzle yet, but they're trying to maximize within those constraints. Okay, and then from Ethiopia, the team went to Europe. They went to Spain to see the third athlete. Terese is from Eritrea. Why wouldn't they go there? Why did they meet him in Madrid? Well, the, the number one reason is that his coach is, is Spanish. So he was he was training with his coach in Spain. I think travel to Eritrea, frankly, is, is, is a little bit challenging. So I think it, it worked out in a number of ways. But yeah, he, he's actually been training with a coach in Spain for, for almost 15 years now, I think, for certainly for more than a decade. So he's comfortable there. Uh, it's at sea level, so that means his, his workouts are a little bit faster. And, you know, I, I chatted to the Nike team after their first day there. They had just come from watching, you know, the Olympic gold medalist train. But their fir- the first thing Brett Kirby, one of the scientists, said to me is, man, this, this guy is a stud. So hmm. 
Tedesse's workouts were impressive, even in the context of having watched some of the greatest runners in the in the world before that. Tedesse is the half marathon world record holder, so he's got real credentials at the shorter distance, and his his training shows that that his speed is is far ahead of where the other two guys are. What their concern is right now is to make sure he can sustain that to the marathon. They did a, a workout, a progressive workout, where he did a series of 1,200-meter intervals, getting faster and faster until he couldn't continue. And uh, they, they tested his lactate profile. And what that showed them is that he has the potential to be very, very good, but at, at the moment, his lactate starts to show up in his blood a little earlier than they'd like. So they're hoping that he's going to focus a little more on long tempo runs and long intervals that last maybe three to 10 minutes per repetition, that, that kind of tempo work, it helps to drive up the lactate threshold. Right. And, and they think that's what he needs. Right. And as we said in an earlier segment, Tedesse had an amazingly low running economy, right? I, I believe he was, he was measured at 150, which I think is believed to be the, the lowest running economy on record, at least for distance runners. Yeah, it's it, it, that value is is so low that it's controversial. You'll talk to you find a lot of scientists who will just say, frankly, I don't believe it. Uh, I asked what their their current testing had said, and they said, well, it wasn't quite as low as 150, but it's still among the best measured ever. So regardless of what the exact number is, this guy has some very special characteristics, including being perhaps the most efficient runner ever, and the. He's got great speed. He's he's shown that on the track, and he's a world cross country champion. He's a half marathon world record holder. The only missing thing is can he sustain that to the marathon? And so they're hoping that with some training adjustments, and also with you know he also needs to learn to take fluid. His his marathons so far have been very disappointing, but he's basically failed to take in many calories. His coach told me that. You know, he finished one of his marathons, which was disappointing. And the first thing he said is, man, I'd really like a sandwich. And that's not usually what you say when you've just finished 26, 26 <laughs> miles. That, that that suggests that he was not taking in enough calories. He was totally depleted. Huh. So in addition to observing the athletes doing these workouts and testing for things like glycogen levels in their blood and um, efficiency in terms of drafting, were there other things that the team specifically were trying to test for when they were over there? There wasn't a lot of really concrete takeaways. They did use some other technology. They used some uh, something that measures muscle oxygenation. So the, the, the sensors on your legs tell you how much oxygen there is in your muscle. And so you can look at that during an interval work, workout. And the pattern tells you if it drops and the oxygen level kind of reaches a plateau, that tells you you're in sustainable physiology you can keep that going but if in each interval the level of oxygen in your muscle just keeps dropping right to the end of the interval that tells you that you're not going to be able to sustain that so they were able to take some of those measurements for instance and Elliot Kipchoge was really interested in seeing that and sure enough during his 12 by 1200 meter workout he was reaching a nice plateau in muscle oxygenation suggesting that this was a pace he could sustain for the long haul so there were lots of little things like that that they were doing and they were also doing testing of the apparel and equipment so they had a bunch of people there biomechanics experts shoe experts so Elliot Kipchoge was trying things on saying no I want the toe box a little a little bigger uh, no uh, you know th these these half tights are a little bit too tight compression supports my muscles but I need to have a little bit more bit mobility so they were they were really interested in getting very specific individual feedback from the athletes on What's working for you in what we're doing and what isn't? What what do we need to do to make sure you're fully comfortable? And then having conversations about 
how should we pace this two-hour marathon attempt? Should it be perfectly even? Uh, you know, all these sorts of discussions that they need that require a lot of trust. And, and that's a topic that kept coming up when I talked to the team is that they need FaceTime to build trust with the athletes and coaches because all the physiology in the world is not going to get you to two hours if the three athletes aren't just 100% confident in their preparation when they step to the line. And how about this issue that we touched on in the first segment, which is that these are three of the greatest runners alive. Uh, they're all used to being top dog, especially Kipchoge. Did you get a sense for whether they were starting to gel a little bit as a team, or are they really still kind of, you know, three individuals who are going to come together to try to accomplish something at the same time? Especially given the fact that they still are in three different locations, they're not training together, right? Yeah, I, I think the second answer is correct. That there, there are three individuals. I, I don't know the, the answers yet, but Nike has some some things to sort out about. For instance, what formation are they going to run in? Who are going to be the pacemakers for these runners? Are they? I, I assume they're not going to have three separate groups of pacemakers. But but if if they have one group of pacemakers, are they going to be Kenyan or Ethiopian or Eritrean? Because one person's comfort doesn't necessarily fit into another person's comfort level. And I, I kind of pressed them on these questions, and their answer was that they haven't figured that out yet. They don't know. And, and you know, it's possible that they have some deep-down secrets, but um, my sense is they're still trying to work out how to make these three individual camps and these three alpha runners gel into, a, gel into a, an attempt. If they're going to run together in a pack, they're going to need to feel comfortable and encouraging of each other otherwise they're going to start to be watching each other and jealous of each other's moves so so i think it's an interesting uh an aspect that i'm not sure they've sorted out all the potential problems yet yeah all right i'm going to ask you to look into the crystal ball a little bit there's still at least three months to go but based on what the team saw during this trip and based on some of the new data that they're looking at any thoughts on which of the three look like they're going to be in a really good position to run sub two? Yeah, uh, well, so if, if if I had to put my money on one of them, it would be Kipchoge, and, and he's he's the smart money. But uh, you know, in pushing the the scientists to, to give me their thoughts, it's clear that they see something special in the other two too. That they they've got lab data that suggests that they can do a lot better in a marathon once they master some of these things like like drinking, taking in carbohydrate. So, um, you know, I, I, to me, Kipchoge is the, the logical favorite, but, but it's hard to know about the others. And we know Kipchoge has run very close to two or three flat, so, you know, within 10 seconds of the world record. I asked Andy Jones, who's a, a scientist who worked with a lot with Paula Radcliffe when she set the, the women's world record, and he, he is a big believer in, in being able to predict marathon times based on uh, laboratory data. And so I, I asked him what he thought that those other two guys could do. And he said the numbers suggest that they're somewhere in that 202, 203, 204 range. Now, that sounds like a long way from two hours. but So we know Kipchoge can run 203, and he basically thinks the other two can run right around 203. And what he believes is all the other factors that they're going to bring together, such as this perfect course and maybe the drafting and the equipment, all these things are going to make it that, that if you can get these guys in 203 shape, they'll have a shot at two hours. And I've interviewed Jones uh, uh, many times over the years because he's a very prominent sports scientist, and I have a lot of respect for his 
he's not a he's not a hype machine or anything. He's not he doesn't work for the the PR department, and he and he certainly wasn't saying, oh yeah, we've got it, it's no problem. But he 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 thinks they have a shot. He thinks they're they're in the they're in the ballpark. And I so I I tend to to take his word that uh, it could happen on the right day. Okay, so what's next for this team, for the athletes and for the Nike team that is trying to get them ready? They they're going to do a dress rehearsal um, over the half marathon distance. Uh, quite soon and we'll get a chance to see how the athletes run together how the pacemaking is going to work what everything looks like Um, and running a half marathon in 59.59 does not tell you you can run a marathon in 159.59 but it'll give us a a pretty good idea of you know whether all these puzzle pieces that we've seen that they're trying to fit together into one attempt whether they can all be crammed together or whether it's going to be just chaos as they try and maintain drafting formation while wearing their new equipment and working with each other. All right. Well, thanks for the update, Alex. Fascinating stuff. Okay. Thank you, David. That was Runner's World columnist and contributing editor Alex Hutchinson. We will continue to share these breaking two updates with you in future episodes of the show. In the meantime, you can find a link to our first installment of the Breaking Two project, as well as links to shows on my own moonshot attempt at runnersworld.com slash audio. And now it's time for The Kick with producer Brian Dalek and reporter Kit Fox. Well, this past weekend was perhaps my favorite race of the year since it started last year. I haven't run it, but I I love the the idea of this race. It is the Stratica Mine Run 5K in Hutchinson, Kansas kit and perfect weather. It's like low 70s, no humidity, no wind. That's because it's 650 feet below the Earth's crust. The idea of this race kind of terrifies me. It's pretty much pitch black. How do they see? Um, Well, of course, you're in a mine, so you can either wear like a miner's helmet. I'm sure a lot of people are just wearing like bicycle helmets with lamps or just any type of flashlight to get around. Other fun facts, and, and you kind of uncovered this race last yeah, year. Yeah, I did. It I was its it. first year. Last year they had about 300 this people. This weekend was its second running. Yeah, and I fell in love with it. Um, it's a 90-second elevator ride down into the race. so Coolest yeah. start, starting corral yeah. ever. Um, they really don't time it because there's 70 turns within this um so you're really not going to set a pr and they have to let like groups of 30 go off every 15 minutes because it's going to be so jam-packed and so here's my concern as a guy who doesn't know directions like at all Mm -hmm. um if i had run that race last year i think i would still be in the mine yeah um i I would be like the the mine person that like appears that they would talk about yeah apparently they have a lot of volunteers on the course because um, there are sections if you go left, you're on course. And if you go right, um, you could be stuck in the mine forever. Um, so they have people down there to help out. Um, mm-hmm. But, I mean, really this is a race where the runners have to dig deep. Oh, boy. Good and job. It sounds, it sounds like such a cool race. What? Wow, an- another good one there, Kit. Um, other things. Thank the, you. The, I'm rocking the puns. Oh, boy. The salt mine is still active in Hutchinson. Um it was carved out in the 1950s. Um, the ceilings are actually 12 feet high. You're not that. Um, we saw some pictures, and it's not that tight, but you know you're still underground. And I would like to give credit to ourselves with your story last yeah. year. Last year they had about 300 runners. This year, 
450, All and right, they had a lot growing. more people. So there was yeah. interest in this race. I, I think Runner's World had some help with that. All right. Breaking news, Brian. Yes. Breaking news. Running won't kill you. That being despite the fact that there have been many studies over the past few years saying that too much exercise isn't good for you or too much running necessarily isn't good for you. That also being the fact that I think we're alive right now. Yes, that <laughs> is a good point. Um, but to kind of further that point about running won't kill you, there was um, this just wonderful study that came out. I love it not just for the results, but for how it came about. This uh, cardiologist based in California, his name's Dr. Ben Rosen, in the late 60s, he was a founding member of this running club. They called it the Breakfast Club. Yeah, kind of like at the start of the running boom. Yeah, exactly. Um, and about 35 to 50 people were a part of this running club very consistently, and they were very serious marathoners, you know, a lot of 240, 250 guys, a lot of people training for sub three. Um, so this running club went on for decades. A lot of these guys ran upwards of 100 marathons. And like ultras and exactly. things like that. So Dr. Rosen started seeing, you know, these papers that said, like, can too much running kill you? And, mm -hmm. and, you know, the research that we've seen before. And he thought back to this group and him being a cardiologist and being able to do research. He was like, well, I have a, a group that proves that this mm -hmm. is wrong. So he looked at the mortality rate of the founding members of this group. And his findings show that uh, the average member of his group, so these guys, you know, very serious marathoners, mm -hmm lived 19 years longer than the average U.S. male. Yeah, an average U.S. male who was 40 in 1975. Yeah, who, was, who, yeah, who turned 40 in 1975. Um, another couple interesting statistics. He looked at 54 of the most serious runners from the period. 36 of them are still alive. And um, of those 36, only 17% have serious heart disease. That's compared to 34% of the national average of men that age. He acknowledges that it's a, not a controlled trial research study necessarily, but... But it was published in a, in a journal. It's published and, uh, you know, it's not thousands of names, but it, it gives a good indication that running will not kill you. That's a good thing because <laughs> we're still kicking. Yeah, we're going to keep going out um, yeah. as much as we can. Um, and you know what we can do because mm -hmm. we're still, still kicking? What? Get a great running themed tattoo yeah you're actually looking for great running themed tattoos and that was kind of came off of this story that we got up last week yeah so i just love this story um there's a college runner named cameron sorter and uh cameron back before the olympics tweeted at matt centrowitz uh u.s elite 1500 meter runner um so sorter tweeted at him matt if you win a medal in Rio, I'll get a tattoo of your face. So, of course, Matt Sinchowitz goes on to have the race of his life, kind of the race of U.S. 1500 history, and he yeah, wins gold. First gold since 1908. And, of course, um, he tweeted right back at Cameron about he this. Remembered, so he remembered. Yeah. He remembered. Not only did he tweet at him before, like, I see this. Yeah. Afterward, he got, I think it was two days later, he tweeted at him, like, so what's up when are we get in this tattoo? So they uh, they kind of interacted on Twitter. They worked together and picked four photos from that race and had people vote on it. Mm -hmm. And they picked um, the winner was this great photo of Matt, like with the American flag draped behind his back. He's got a great facial expression. So 
Uh, Cameron got the tattoo, right? Huge on his back shoulder. Yeah, at the end of 2016, Cameron gets this tattoo on his shoulder. Um, But some other fun facts came out of this. One, um, Cameron's from Oregon, so he was actually able to meet up with Matthew Centrowitz for a run in December. And he could show him the tattoo, because who doesn't want to see a person who gets a tattoo of your face on your back. Oh, absolutely. And then two, um, you know, as this runner, Cameron has had a really good indoor season since getting the tattoo. Um, He placed first in his first two meets and ran an indoor 800 PR in his third meet. I don't know, Brian. This year. So I think it's good luck. It's the magic, magic of the mat. Magic of the Matthew Centrowitz tattoo. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we should say, Allie Nolan talked to Cameron and got this story, and we're just going to throw it out there. She has said she will get a tattoo of Galen Rupp if he wins the Boston Marathon. Yeah, we just want that to be on record. Mm-hmm. She said it within the office, but we're spreading this as far and wide as possible. If Galen Rupp wins the Boston Marathon, associate editor Allie Nolan is getting a tattoo of his face. And um, should we do a tattoo bet that I won't keep? Well, no. Okay, so I already have mine. Um, And and I have two scenarios. Uh, The first, Brian, if you win the Boston Marathon, I'll get a tattoo of your face. Fantastic. Okay. Or if Noah Drotti, my man, wins the Boston Marathon, I'm getting a tattoo of his face. Okay. You should get a tattoo of Noah's face. Regardless, I think so. Yeah. Um, And if, if I win the Mine Run 5K... Someday, even though I know they don't have winners. Yeah, if I mentally no win that yeah, race, yeah. I'll get like a, a tattoo of like a coal miner's hat. There you on, go. On my arm. There you go. Yeah. It's going to be a rocking tattoo. Oh, boy. Well, Kit, that was fantastic. Too many puns again this week, but thank you for doing the kick one more time. You're welcome. Thanks, Brian. That's it for this week's show. Again, many thanks to all of you who have left us reviews and ratings. We really appreciate it. And we read every one. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World. This week's show was produced by Sylvia Ryerson, Christine Fennessy, and Brian Dalek. Be sure to join us next week for an incredibly compelling episode. It's about food, but not in the way you might imagine. Trust me, you will not want to miss it. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week.